Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week on the podcast, we have Andy Loudon, head bartender of Tipling Club in Singapore. We chat about working in socio-rehab in Manchester, 69 Colbrook Row, Satan's Whiskers, as well as his iteration of Tipling Club. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Andrew Loudon. I'm the, uh, the head bartender at Tipping Club in Singapore and also the, the group head bartender for the Spara Spree group in Singapore. So I look after Tipling Club, which is our flagship venue. And then I look after six other venues in the, in the company as well. Um, but all, all the beverage programs and cocktail lists are managed by me. All the staff training is done by me as well. Sounds like there's a lot of stuff to do, eh? It's a lot, but it's fun. Like That's, what, that's why we do it, right? Like, yeah, exactly. I'd rather be busy than quiet. Cool. So we know that you work in Singapore right now, but you obviously don't sound like someone from Singapore. Very uh, true. <laughs> where did your career start? Uh, so originally I'm from, uh, I'm from a small town in, in Yorkshire or in North Lincolnshire in the UK, which is uh, called Scunthorpe. Uh, kind of grew up there and that was where my first bar job was as well. So not a lot of people know this, but I, I worked for about three months in a place called the Blue Belt Inn, which was owned by the Weatherspoons Group. Wow. Yeah. Um, selling cheap pints and, uh, and cheap food to, to a lot of locals. You know, like I had a regular guest once, we were talking about flying, and it, we, he said that uh, Ryanair is the Weatherspoons of the sky, which yeah. I think is, is an amazing comparison. Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> but you get a quite good uh, spirit selection there, no? Usually in Weatherspoons. Uh, I mean, it's very now, reasonably priced. Like, when I was working there, that's, what, 16 years ago now. So <laughs> not so much. Then. <laughs> so there, there in Scunthorpe, the spirit selection was not great. When I go back <laughs> at Christmas every now and then, now I'm like, oh, I'll have that, I'll have that, and it's super cheap, but... At the time when I was working there, uh, it was Orange Reef, mm-hmm. Blue Wicked, Spin-Off Ice, and, uh, and stuff like that. So so how, how did that uh, shape you, like, at the beginning? Was it something that sort of, like, made you think, okay, there's more to this industry, or did it make you think, okay, this is not for me? Uh, it made me want to never work in a bar again. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, when I left there, I went there for, for three months, like I said, so three days after my 18th birthday. I got the job there because uh, I had a couple of friends working there. And then after three months, I was like, I never want to work in a bar again. <laughs> so I quit. So. <laughs> and what did you actually get into bartending then? Uh, so that would have been when I, when I moved to Manchester for university. At, uh, I was over there loving student life for the first few months. And then realizing after three months that I'd kind of ran out of all the student loan that I had for that, for that quarter. <laughs> so I needed to get um, a little bit of extra income. I came across a bar that was uh, that was kind of my favorite bar in the area that I lived in, which was Didsbury in South Manchester. And um, they had a place called a Pitcher and Piano, which is a, a national company in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where I started working. I, I went in, asked for a job. The guy behind the bar said that there was no positions available. So I went back in the next day and spoke to a girl that was behind the bar and she said there was a position available. Uh, <laughs> okay. So it was just one of those things. Uh, I was You're persistent. such a charmer, man. <laughs> I was persistent <laughs> and I kept on going in. Yeah, and I, worked, I ended up working for those guys for about four years. Oh, that's well. such a long time. Yeah. How did that go for you? So you started as a bartender, am I right? Started as a, as a junior bartender or, or mm-hmm. originally just a bar back, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was only working weekends. And for the first probably four or five months, I was terrible. 
That yeah, was the probably the worst bartender that that I was. I was lazy. I was. Uh, I didn't know what was really going on, and then I, I feel as though I've, I've become quite an aware person, and I think that that helped me at the time because I remember we had a staff meeting, and no one's name was called out, no one pointed at me or anything like that. But they, were, they said a few things that I realised I was doing. Really? Um, and I was like, I need to stop that and start working a little bit harder. <laughs> but then six months later, after that staff, uh, staff meeting, I was the head bartender there. Oh, that's amazing. And I'd left university and decided to take up bartending as a full-time thing. So what did you study at university, if I may ask? Uh, so I did uh, retail marketing mm-hmm. and media studies. Okay. And was so. that something that you liked? or? Um, it's something that I'm interested in. Media is, is certainly something that I'm interested in. Marketing is, is obviously a, a huge part of our industry at the moment as well. Um, but one of the books I had to read at, at university was The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Marks and Spencers. Uh, which isn't the most enthralling and uh, no. uh, and enticing subject <laughs> in the world. So uh, yeah, after when I started to take bartending a little bit more seriously, and when I realised that I was actually becoming quite good at it, uh-huh. um, I left university. My parents were fine with that because they knew I was very happy in what I was doing. Um, the conversation wasn't particularly nice. Uh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, that's when I kind of started doing it full time. But I think one of the good things about social media nowadays is that it's uh, a, a bit more visual uh, mm. to convey the message that bartending is a career yeah. to, to your family. And so yeah, I think I mean, it, it makes it easier than, yeah. than when we started, probably. Yeah. I yeah. mean, 14 years ago, if it was 20 years, if I was 20 when we started doing it, when I started doing it full time, nobody knew bartending as a full time career. Mm-hmm. Not, Indeed. A, not a single person. Yeah, exactly, and it was also like I think second class to chefs. Like yeah. you have a chef that's like that's that's a serious career. Yeah, bartending is yeah, it's a university job, right? Yeah, and uh, so that we're done with the picture and piano. Uh, what made you decide that you were ready for our next move? Um, so I, I started to learn more and more about cocktails during the last kind of uh, year or so, two years or so, um, picture and piano. They sent me on a couple of courses. Then I had to go back to the bar and train a lot of the staff. And then I wanted to take, I wanted to p- pursue it a little bit further. Uh, I really wanted to work in the socio rehab. Um, I applied for there, but my persistency didn't didn't work out for that one. So uh, I went to the next best thing. I went to someone who used to work at, at socio rehab, who uh, is now, funnily enough, in Singapore. So Tim Barnes. Oh no thing. way! He was my manager. Okay. Uh, Harvey Nichols. Mm-hmm. Um, and we worked, I worked there for, for a year. Uh, I think we, we worked together for about 10 months or so before he left. Mm-hmm. And that was when he was leaving Manchester and leaving the UK to, to spread his wings and venture out into this side of the world. Such a small world. Yeah. I mean, our industry feels very, very small at times, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. We all kind of all know each other, which is very cool. Yeah. And after that? So Harvey Nichols. After that, after spending about a year or so there, uh, I moved over to, I finally got the position at Social Rehab. So all my oh, positions awesome. managed to finally pay Eventually paid back. So yeah. t- talk to us about Social Rehab. What kind of bar is it? So uh, Social was, it, it's it's still one of the venues that means the most to me in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's no longer open in Manchester anymore. But it is the venue that as soon as I walked in there or as soon as most people walked in there or, or the customers walked in there, it just in- instantly hit you with that cool factor the doors on the outside were there was a lot of graffiti there was a lot of spray paint it was a lot of kind of banksy style stuff on the inside it was a lot of kind of like plush leather sofas lots of very cool artwork that the owner had collected as well um so bo myers was the owner and he opened it up with a with a couple of other people but he was the main guy that i worked for at the time Uh, and it was very much a kind of like 
what mid 2000s 2010 kind of like disco cocktail bar like uh-huh. cocktails were only just really starting in manchester mm-hmm. at that time they'd been around for seven years when i when i started working there and they'd been at the forefront of the industry in manchester for that amount of time and it was it was yeah it was tongue-in-cheek it was keech it was disco it was fun it was it wasn't table service it was all bar service um yeah it was just a very very cool bar and uh what kind of drinks did they make and how, what, what did you learn from there, like drinks-wise? Um, drinks-wise, it was kind of like uh, the owner came up with all the drinks. We had a page of classics on there, I think, which, okay. which was probably mm-hmm. about six drinks. But then all of the drinks were kind of like, I wouldn't say disco-inspired or tiki-inspired or anything, but there was a whole m- mix of different kind of flavors and different kind of styles. So it was, for me, what I learned there was, wasn't just about the drinks, it was a lot about customer service it was mm-hmm. round building serving multiple customers all at one time being efficient as possible so I, when i worked there i worked with a guy called tom vernon as well oh really uh, who was uh who was kind of uh, took me under under his wing a little bit uh-huh. when i started there because i'd never worked in in kind of that volume of a cocktail bar before as well mm-hmm. so not only was i working with tom vernon i was working with uh linden as well because he was right next door in kiko and that's all the same kind of business uh-huh. um so it was more kind of like, it was the more organized way of starting to uh-huh. kind of bartend. Mm-hmm. We had Tom on this podcast, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It was like one of our early episodes. Oh, wow. And uh, how was it to work with Lyndon, like closely to him? Um, again, like for, for me, like bartending is not just about, it's not just about the drinks you make. It's not uh-huh. just about the, the kind of venue. It's also about the, the characters and the personalities that you find within those bars mm-hmm. as well. That's why a lot of people love going to, to certain bars all over the world. Linden was certainly a character. Um, oh, he certainly still is, yeah. I, I probably learned most of my jokes that I know from Linden. Yeah. And, and just the, the way to interact and the way to manage a room full of maybe 30 or 40 people uh-huh. you can fit in Kiko. Um, the way to make everyone in that room laugh, the way to make kind of like the atmosphere when you've only got two people in there still great. That's what I kind of learned from those those people as well. He's such a mega guy, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's awesome. Cool. Then I think we're towards the end of your stint in Manchester at this point, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. So what made you decide that you were ready for a move? Um, I mean, Manchester was a great city and, I, and I st- I've not been back for a while, but I'd still loved, I've still got a lot of friends there. Um, but it was certainly time for me to to kind of develop and and looking to to taking it even more seriously so uh, i asked a few friends if they knew anyone that had any jobs mm-hmm. uh, or any vacancies in london um bo the owner of uh, socio rehab got in contact with a friend of his called paul mant mm-hmm. uh, who used to run quo vardis and mm-hmm. did a few other things in uh, in london now works out for a, for a company in australia um but he put me in contact with marcus Delzanis who was mm-hmm. the operations manager for Six Down Corbuck Row and the Drinks Factory, which was ran by Tony Canigliaro. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I sent him in my CV, uh, and then he invited me down for a, for a trial shift. So I took the train from Manchester, got my accommodation all sorted, went down to, uh, to London. I mean, you mean you, f- you find your shoebox where yeah, to live? Basically, yeah, basically. <laughs> I found a hostel. I think I, I, think I shared a room with my, with my uh, future housemate, actually. Really? Um, because he was moving down to London at the same time. We all kind of organized it together. Um, yeah, so we, we stayed in a little hotel room, like single beds next to each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not much space. Um, hotel is a big yeah, word there. Yeah, it definitely wasn't a hotel. Hostel, maybe. <laughs> uh, and then I did, I did the trial shift. 
I mean, social rehab was 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 no uniform. There was mm-hmm. there's not wasn't really a uniform there. There was, it was just nice shirts, jeans, and trainers. Mm-hmm. Wear what you want. Whereas six down Corbett Row was like black trousers, black shirt, uh, sorry, white shirt, black tie, mm-hmm. and then they gave you a jacket to uh-huh, wear as uh-huh. well. So I had to buy the white shirt, buy the black trousers, buy the black shoes. Buy Mark, one hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, bartending wasn't the money maker that it was. No, <laughs> so I got all all of those things together. And luckily, they liked me on the on the trial shift, uh, and invited me down to start with them. I think maybe two or three weeks later. Okay, Sixteen uh, Acre Grove is uh, such an institution, and I loved the way that bartenders would interact with each other in order to make drinks as quickly yeah. as possible. Uh, would you like to talk to us a little bit about how the whole thing was structured there? Yeah, sure. Um, so. In, at Six Down Cobra Crow as well, just to give a, a little kind of like ambience about, about the actual venue. It's in Angel, Islington, which is a busy area in kind of like uh, North London. But it doesn't feel like London at all. Like when I worked there for the first three months, I felt like I was somewhere mm-hmm. in Milan mm-hmm. in a little... I mean, that's the kind of style that Tony was looking for and he mm-hmm. pulled it off perfectly. Because um, it's all kind of red leather seatings, black and white tiles, brown furniture. There's a pianist that plays in there. It's very neo kind of noir film esque as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and behind the bar, it's it's very very small. So you've got one station. You have two bartenders. Um, there's 40 seats I think we had in total, including the bar. You have two people working on the floor and one bar back. So mm-hmm. five people in total. And with the one station you had you had 12 drinks on the menu so mm-hmm. six drinks on that menu were split down the left hand side on the pass and six drinks on the right hand side okay. for the other bartender to make um and that was just on weekends um but the way like you described the the interaction between the bartenders to make a simple round would be if you've got crossover ingredients that go into say i'm calling out on the pass three drinks all three drinks have lemon juice but one of the drink is on the right hand side then i'll lemon juice all of the tins oh that's cool yeah mm-hmm. and then the other person will just carry on if they've got the, if they're doing their say egg whites in two of the drinks they'll do egg white for two of the drinks so it just requires this really good kind of communication between the person you're working with on the bar so whoever's on the pass is calling out the drinks as usual mm-hmm. and then you're just talking to each other about how you're making that entire round for mm-hmm. the customer mm-hmm. But the thing that shocked me, I noticed that uh, by sitting at the bar, every time I went there, it's at some point it becomes such a polished experience that it's almost like there's no verbal communication. Yeah. It just, ev- everything seems so seamless. I yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, it does get like that when you, uh, I mean, there was there was kind of two or three people that I really enjoyed, had a really good, good connection with working behind the bar. So as soon as I'd called those drinks, we knew it, what each other were, were going to do straight mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. So when it when it comes down, when you've worked with someone for maybe three or four months and you've kind of got that down, that patter down, uh-huh. and pulling the drinks and it's just flowing, customers would lit- literally sit there and take photos and videos. And this is kind of, I suppose, at the start of Instagram and social media uh-huh. when I was working there. And, um, you know, that was kind of like a new thing. Now it happens all the time where people take photos in bars and videos of the bartenders and stuff like that. But back then it was it was a, it was kind of a new thing. And yeah, people would tip and people would people would love that experience because they would be enthralled by watching two bartenders make six drinks from the same ticket, but make all of those six drinks kind of together. Uh-huh. It's super interesting. Yeah, no, it was absolutely phenomenal to watch. And um, in terms of the drinks in that specific menu, what kind of drinks did you guys uh, make and how did you guys go about making the menu, putting the menu together? Uh, so, I mean, the whole concept is kind of Tony C's 
concept and and 69 was always kind of like his uh well it was his it was his first own bar that he had so it was very much down the line of kind of like an italian aperitif digestive style drinks mm-hmm. um but he kind of there was no menu concept i would say it was just 12 drinks listed on a menu very old school not even in a menu folder just on a on one sheet of mm-hmm. paper um and tony's thought process to the way he described it at the time was always kind of like retro future which is something that i still kind of work loosely with nowadays as well um so he'd take drinks from the past and then he'd reimagine them add new ingredients new techniques mm-hmm. um and new processes into into the making of that classic drink but make it into a brand new drink so it wasn't just changing one or two ingredients and then keeping the same name. It was something a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. And he made fantastic drinks. Yeah, absolutely. And what was the relationship between the bar and the drinks factory? So um, let's talk about what's the drink factory before we actually go into the, the this uh, this question. What was the drink factory? So the drinks factory was kind of the head office and the laboratory of Tony C. And, and the drinks factory kind of company. Um, so that's where uh, a lot of the R&D and research was done for not only 69 Corbett Row, but the Zeta Townhouse, mm-hmm. um, Termini, when that eventually opened as well, um, where a lot of the consultancies were, were kind of like spearheaded from. Uh, a lot of the staff trainings were done from. It was, a, it was an amazing space, like a whole lab dedicated to R&D. And then books and different spirits and different things to all that bartenders could go in and learn about if they wanted to. There's a whole library there to, to read as well. It was a very welcoming environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every now and then, or one or two people from Six Down Corbett Row would be in charge of lab days. So maybe, say, on a, on a Monday through to kind of Thursday, one or two people from the 69 team, bartenders, uh, would go over there and they prep the ingredients used at 69 Corbett Row on the bar for that week. Mm-hmm. So we'd do it like a like you do a, a general order mm-hmm. for the week's par levels. Um, you'd say kind of like eight bottles of Flint vodka, um, six bottles of pink peppercorn and, and rose vodka and, and stuff like that. So it was a whole ordering process and then people would go off to the lab, they'd make it and then they'd bring it back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, how long have you worked there for? In 69, I worked there for two and a half years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an amazing experience. I learned mm-hmm. an incredible amount. Because it's such a cool bar, yeah. very, very well known. You guys have uh, for sure achieved uh, your share amount of accolades while you were there. Yeah. But, you know, what was the breaking point or what was the point that made you think, okay, now I need to sort of move on? Um, as well as like, for, for me, bartending has always been a, a kind of like learning as many styles of bartending as I, as I kind of mm-hmm. can. You know, there's not one style of bartending there's many different ones so mm-hmm. i'd kind of done the kind of the upmarket kind of manchester one when i worked at harvey nichols um i'd done the disco style service uh very kind of like up tempo high energy uh, venue within um socio rehab i'd done the kind of technical side at colbrook row uh, while i was there as well i was entering a lot of drinks competitions and mm-hmm. i was mm-hmm. i was doing very well in them so that's when uh, kind of I won a few competitions in London, regional ones, European ones, won the International Havana Grand Prix in 2014. And then I kind of decided that I wanted to l- learn a different side to bartending again. Mm-hmm. So com- completely kind of flip it on its head. Whereas Tony's kind of like this and 69 Corbett Row was this kind of like amazing laboratory experience where you're playing with different ingredients and different processes and different machines. I wanted to strip it back completely bare and learn how to make drinks with just the products that are just available around me 
Okay. Just on the bar. Mm-hmm. So no home, almost home, no homemade ingredients. Um, and there was a bar that had just been opened by uh, a couple of very influential bartenders in London who used to run the uh, the Match Bar Group and Milk and Honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kevin Armstrong and Fraser Chapman had just opened a, a bar in Bethnal Green called Satan's Whiskers. And they offered me offered me a position there. Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of to to eventually kind of run the place, to run the venue. So at 69 Corbuck Row, I was always kind of, I was the assistant manager after, mm-hmm. you know, working there for kind of six months, some changes were done within the company. Um, this, the oldest the assistant manager before me got promoted to head bartender and I was pr- promoted to assistant head bartender. Mm-hmm. After kind of like the next two years of working there, I wanted to run my own venue, as most people do. So of it was, course. It's kind of progression. It was also learning a different side to bartending as well. And that's why Satan's Whiskers appealed to me. So Satan's Whisker was uh, quite, it is still quite popular because it's a fantastic place for bartenders to go and grab a drink, I think, yeah. as well as consumers. I think it's a very accessible bar, but can be quite geeky in terms of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not as you said before, not, not about uh, making your own ingredients, but using what's around you and like forgotten classics and things like yeah. that. So you guys had a very dynamic menu, am I correct? Yeah. So uh, the cocktail menu at Satan's Whiskers, it would be... so. Th- the kind of theme of the venue was old school cocktails or classic cocktails and old school hip hop. Mm. So, you know, one of those things you can just kind of like, you can remember it like that. And everyone knows that concept as soon as you say it and everyone remembers it. The cocktail menu would have a kind of roughly 24 drinks on there every single day and it would change every single day. So you had, uh, yeah, those 24 drinks you could, you had kind of three or four that would maybe stay. You had a Satan's, Satan's martini and a Satan's Manhattan that would be on that menu every single day. But so the, how do you make a Satan's Martini? So, uh, so it was the setup if, there. If, we're, if we're allowed to know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so someone might shoot me, but <laughs> they're not in Singapore. <laughs> <Too late. laughs> um, so the setup at, at, at Satan's Whiskers was incredible. It's the best bar setup I've ever worked with. Okay. The best designed bar that I've ever been behind. Um, we had these huge Hoshizaki freezers where every single piece of glassware was in for the entire shift that you'd need. And then on the bottom shelf in, in those uh, freezers, you had um, your spirits for every kind of stirred down drink that you would make. So your gin, your vodka, or your bourbon, rye, cognac, etc. Satan's Martini would be uh, 60 mils of gin or vodka, and then kind of like 12 and a half mils of dry vermouth. So we used Naughty Pratt there, that was the mm-hmm. house. But it was, when you're when you're using a spirit that comes out of the freezer at minus 22 degrees, the starting point's lower. You can stir it down for longer. So whereas if you're using room temperature spirit, you can stir down uh, a martini to about minus two and a half degrees before it's ready. Uh-huh. When you're stirring down frozen spirit, it takes a lot longer. Obviously, it doesn't freeze. Frozen spirit is just a term that's... Yeah, straight from the freezer. The freezer yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll take you longer to stir it down because the dilution doesn't happen as quick. And you can take that martini down to around kind of like minus... We figured it out that... Anything after minus seven and a half degrees is a little bit too much chill. Uh-huh. And it kind of stings the lips a little bit too much. So Satan's Martini was just a classic martini, but served super, super cold. That's so cool. Yeah. Fabulous. And uh, so in the rest of the menu? And the rest of the menu would uh, would change. You know, we'd mix up old school classic cocktails. Um, occasionally, we'd make a few things in-house as well you know there was there was certainly a lot of creativity there you know bartenders we love to be creative of course um but the the kind of whole theme of the menu was centered around classic cocktails so you had four sections you had kind of your 
uh, your sparkling style cocktails. Then you'd have your cocktail section, which were your kind of straight up drinks. So anything served in a coupette or Nicanora style glass. Uh, then you had your shorts, so something served in a, in a rocks glass, and then you had your long cocktails as well. And yeah, six between four and six drinks in each section. I think that, you know, like you have a lot of bars that divide the drinks by uh, either uh, eras or by like spirits. But I think that distinction between short and long is such a cool thing to have yeah, in a menu, right? It's, it's easy for the customer that way as well. Like we like to overcomplicate things sometimes. We, we do. And I think yeah. uh, long and short gives you such a good idea about how does your drink look like and yeah. it's sort of like you manage your level of thirst right you're very thirsty you want something very long yeah, yeah it's a cool it's a cool way to do it yeah. i think it's underrated way of doing it for yeah. sure i think like like i said we like to overcomplicate things mm-hmm. i think people think that you know the, the the harder we make it to understand the fancier it is yeah, yeah whereas yeah, yeah. sometimes the simpler the better and that was the beauty of satan's whiskers as well because it was just it was very very classical clock cocktails done very very well mm-hmm. um very very simple kind of old school hip-hop but played in a very very cool way in a very very nice environment where everyone had all the staff kind of had a little input into the playlist as well which was very cool oh that's so cool yeah and that's the music that i grew up on as well so it made it even uh made it very special for me to be able to play that music there how long have you worked in satan's for uh again it was it was just over two and a half years that i that i ended up working there um and loved every single minute of it. It was, it was a fantastic bar, a fantastic team. And it's it such a great learning experience for me as well because, like I say, like Tony and working at Tony C and uh, working at Six Down Cobra Crow was all about the equipment and the scientific process. Mm-hmm. Satan's Whiskers was all about the knowledge. So mm-hmm. it was about the knowledge of kind of like what you have on that bar. So, you know, how you know where all of the ABVs that are just in your speed rail. All of the ABVs of the products that that go from the vodka on your, your right hand side to your gin, your triple sec, your rums, your bourbons, your cognac, your amaretto, your aperol, your campari, all of those ABVs, every single member of bar staff knew them. Every single member of bar staff also tried to know as much as they can with the back bar. Mm-hmm. So and all and then all about the different processes to how to make these different spirits, the history of those classic cocktails as well. Because if you're a classic cocktail bar and bartenders like to get geeky. If someone asks you where that where that drink is from, you need to be able to know. Of course. So everyone knew the revolving classics that we had and anything new that was on there, we'd know the history and know the kind of perfect recipe for it straight away. So about that, like I think there is a phase in bartending, right? Which we all go through and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. It's yeah. called the super bartender phase. Yeah. It's like the guy the day that you learn how to make a fifty fifty Sazerac, yeah. All of a sudden you're a super bartender and this entitles you to go in any bar and ask for anything, like mega weird no matter what, yeah. and be super snobby about the result, yeah, right? Yeah. So we used to have a lot of super bartenders at the American bar, right? And then it was hilarious to see them when they would sit to see them when they would sit at the bar yeah. and talk to Eric, right? I had with this guy once, he's like Oh, I'm sorry. Do you mind? Uh, can I get a Can I get a uh, Bobby Burns? Mm. And Eric's like, sure. Any preference on your whiskey? And he's like, oh, do you have Jura Superstition? And he's like, no. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I'll have a daiquiri then. And like <laughs> <laughs> very, very different. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, cool. Yeah. And um, yeah, like another thing about Satan's Whiskers, which is something that I mean, it's a very old school mentality of not only the drinks, the service, the the music, but it's uh, it was also about how to how to build a round of drinks, which mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people touch on nowadays. Mm-hmm. So whether, what drink goes out for, if you've got a round of six, if you've got one ticket with six drinks, which order those drinks should go out in to hit the table at the best quality? Because some drinks will start deteriorating straight away. Some take 30 seconds or so. Mm-hmm. 
the idea there was to to build the perfect round of drinks and every bartender should be able to know that as well mm. like that was super interesting to to kind of learn and and like i say not a lot of people touch on it nowadays but it was it was a very eye-opening thing for me what's the general rule of thumb in regards to this like building a, a round of drinks like what kind of drinks do you try to deliver first and what would you deliver last yeah. so what do you think deteriorates sooner than other so, drinks for me in the the way we kind of figured it out was that any kind of drink served in a in a flute would go out first so mm-hmm. you're trying to make all those drinks within kind of like a 30 second window yeah of yeah. course yeah so your your kind of flute one would go first and then anything served over long over ice would be second short over ice would be third and then anything that's straight up would be last okay yeah. that's cool yeah so we talked about the satan's quite in, in depth i think it was this your last experience in london yeah so uh from from leaving there, I uh, I left London, left the UK. Mm-hmm. How d- how did that feel at the time? Uh, you know, I'd lived there for five and a half years, um, and it was you know I'd made some great friends, but it was it was certainly time for me to maybe leave. I love like I say, I love London. It's such a great city, um, but I wanted to see more of the world. Of course. And uh, what was your next step after that then? Um, so I went out to South America and spent six months traveling around there. So I went, I actually flew from London to Cuba. For fabulous. Uh, yeah. After winning the Havana Grand Prix in 2014, in 2016, they invited me back out to be a judge of the 2016 version of the, of the competition. Um, so I kind of used that as a, as a moment to kind of move over to well, travel, start traveling South America. So started in Cuba, did 10 days of work or so with with Havana Club uh-huh. and then uh, stayed in Cuba for another two weeks on top of that and then flew over to, to Bogota. And then from there? So I spent a month in Colombia. Okay. Uh, and then a month in Peru. So Colombia, Peru, Chile, Bolivia and Brazil. And Brazil was the, when I got there, it was the end of the, when I got to Rio, it was the end of the Olympics in 2016. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So, which was an amazing experience as well. Brazil was, I mean, all of the countries that I traveled around were amazing, but the two that stood out for me were Colombia and Mm -hmm. Brazil. Awesome. I've I've done so little of South America. I've only been to Brazil. No, sorry, I've only been to Argentina. So Okay, I missed that out. Yeah, there you go. So we compete each other. (laughs) Did uh, traveling across South uh, America uh, change the way you see the bar industry or the way you think about drinks? Um, or not really? It just gave you like a little bit more of a experience luggage so you can talk to guests better? Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, we didn't re- I didn't really do that much drinking when I was out there. Mm-hmm. Like we went mm-hmm. to a few bars. We had a few beers. We tried a few local things and lo- local flavors and food. And I've, I've always got a lot of inspiration for drinks from food and flavor combinations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So certainly from trying food, yeah, 100%. It did open my eyes to more ingredients and more mm. things that, w- that were out there. Mm. Um, in terms of drinking, didn't really try that much. Local beer was good. <laughs> but I was Classic. Also on a <laughs> I was also on a, on, a, on a bit of a budget for it as well. So didn't want to spend too much money doing all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, of course. So six months is such a long time. Uh, sounds, sounds like a super cool trip. Yeah, it was amazing. And uh, after that, how did you go about choosing the next place where to live? Um, we flew from Brazil back to, so Sylvia was from Milan. We went to, we flew back to Milan. We spent a month or so back in Milan, a couple mm. of weeks back in the UK. And then we, uh, we decided that we were going to go head out to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so we flew from Milan to, we ended up flying from Milan to Melbourne. And, uh, how was Melbourne for you? I love Melbourne. The food there is amazing. Yep. Uh, food, 
drinks very very good food's amazing people are very friendly weather's good well the weather's very different in the space of one day it can change four different yeah. times in four different seasons all in the space of four hours if almost it seems um but yeah it was a great experience and it was it was a place where i started to work a little bit more as well so i started mm -hmm. working at a place called bar americano um and it was i mean working there was a was a great experience it was very similar to something like corbuck row or bar termini so i was kind of going i was kind of mixing both corbuck row and satan's whiskers in one because is it was that kind of style of place but it was all classic cocktails mm. so we'd kind of like amalgamated it almost seemed like he'd amalgamated both of the, the bars in london that i worked at to uh, into one venue so in terms of uh, bar american is a very particular bar uh, mm -hmm. first of all because of the size am i correct yes so how big was it 10 people Ten Legal, pe legally mm -hmm. ten, 10 people legally yeah <laughs> did you ever go over the legal so uh, limit? the most uh, the most amount of people i had in there on like a tuesday or a thursday night it was midweek because i was by myself um was 21 people oh yeah how did you have all 721 people by yourself? Well, that's the, that was the amazing thing about, about that venue. And it, there's funnily where I learned so much about kind of hosting and being, a, a, like I said about Lyndon earlier, being able to control a room and, and talk to people and, and make sure everyone's entertained. At Bar Americano, Monday through Thursday, there's only one member of staff. So if you get busy, you have to be able to deal with it. So your bartender, your waiter, your door staff, your your everyone. You are effectively controlling the room, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was amazing. I used to have such a laugh there. I used to not shout out at people, but I'd have so many jokes with with the with the with the Melbourne crew that were there or the the, the tourists that were coming in. Fantastic place to work. Learned a lot about service and about myself as a as someone who interacts with guests a lot more. We talked about the spirit selection that you had at Satan's Whiskers, which mm -hmm. was quite uh, diverse and yep. you had a little bit of everything and you were quite knowledgeable about it. In Bar Americano, if I'm not mistaken, it's the exact opposite. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. So so how was the uh, spirit list there and how the, was it put together? Okay, so the spirit list at Bar Americano was literally, uh, there wasn't a list. Um, you could write it down in literally categories because that was all there was. There was just one variety of gin, one variety of rum. So that we had a light rum, you had a dark rum, one bourbon, one cognac. Then you had like the Italian style digestive. So you had uh, Campari, you had a diff few different liqueurs, uh, Aperol, and that was pretty much it. And nothing was in a, in a branded bottle. So no customer would actually know what gin you were serving mm -hmm. so it was kind of it was very clever in a way it's something that kind of like the operation dagger kind of touched on here as well indeed serving mm -hmm. stuff with no brand on it mm -hmm. kind of like breaks down the, the barrier of advertising to a to a customer it makes it also difficult to sign brand contracts i guess yeah. but yeah. <laughs> yeah but i mean it wasn't really the kind of venue where he was going to do that you know no, matt, of course. matt is is uh he's an amazing artist and that that venue was beautiful as well so quite okay, cool. Uh, yeah. How long? How much time did you spend in Australia? So eighteen months in total. Um, but really, it was kind of, it was more traveling for me than it was working. So uh -huh. I, in in Australia as well, with the visa that I was on, I could only work in Melbourne for, or I could only work in one company for six months. Okay. Um, after six months at Bar Americano, uh, I ended up leaving and traveling up the east coast. That's cool. Uh, how was the travel there? Did you like it? Yeah, it was. Uh, again, it was it was a fantastic experience and. While I'm always keeping, like we said before about South America and whether it changed my perceptions on and approaches, approaches to drinks, 
it's great to see another continent and another kind of batch of ingredients that I've never come across before. So lemon myrtle, every Australian gin in the world has got lemon yeah, myrtle. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it was something that I'd never come across before. So yeah, you see you see different things and you pick up different things and you pick up different flavors. Um, and the, f the food and the produce there can be fantastic as well. How did you choose your final stop for now, which is Singapore? Um, so after kind of a year and a half in Australia, I flew to Hong Kong to meet up with some friends over there. And I was, I was thinking, well, where am I? I? I need to go back to work soon. I'm going to do a little bit of traveling. This is what I thought at the time. I'm going to do a little bit of traveling through Asia. It's either going to be Hong Kong, where I know a handful of people, or it's going to be Singapore, where I know a handful of people. And I got to Hong Kong and I met up with some friends and we were there for, for four days in total. And we were out until 6 a.m. every every morning. And I was like, well, I do not want to be here. Up. <laughs> <laughs> because I had too much of a good time. Um, no, it was, it, I mean, Hong Kong's amazing. It's a great city. But after kind of, I, so I spent six months traveling through Asia. And when I first got to Singapore, the city struck me. Struck uh -huh. me. So I felt at home. I felt like it was, it was a very... I mean, it's, it's super clean. It's a very green city as well. There's lots of parks. It's busy. It has a lot of first-class bars as well. Um, I had friends here. But it, yeah, it was just, it, it felt like it was the right place. Mm -hmm. It felt like the right place. How did you get the job uh, at Tipling? Um, when I was traveling, when I was traveling through Asia, I think I was in Thailand at the time, I started speaking to a few people out here and I was like, oh, do you know of anything? And I was doing the same for people in Hong Kong as well. Um, and I know Joe Schofield the old head bartender uh -huh. at, uh, at Tipling Club I knew him through uh, through Manchester when he was there and, and when I was there and then we worked when he worked at the Zeta Townhouse I was at 69 Corbett Row, so we kind of knew each other from that um, so I, I was like oh do you know of anything do you want to meet up for a few beers when I when I get to Singapore and he was like yeah sure no problem a few months down the line when I get here he says he gets in contact on on Facebook Messenger or whatever and he's like uh, do you want to come out for a coffee I'm like, sure, yeah, I've not seen a Joe in a while. I'll grab a coffee with him. So I'm a typical tourist, just finished my travel, travels through Asia. Uh, so I'm in shorts and a vest and I'm walking around the streets of Singapore. Um, and after five minutes of kind of like a little bit of small talk and, and seeing how, how we are, um, he's like, oh, so I'm kind of leaving Tipling Club. So if you want to apply for the position, you know, I can put a good word in and uh, we can go from there. And I was like, well didn't expect to be kind of interviewed <laughs> in the in the attire that I'm wearing um and then I, I you know as as we should all do I, I said oh let me have a little think about it first so <laughs> played it cool um went back I was speaking to a few different people and there's a few different things things out there at the time um I did my research on on Tipling Club I did my research on on Ryan the the, the owner and and executive chef there And then I said to Joe, I'd, I'd like to sit down and talk to Ryan, if it was possible. And luckily, he was in Singapore at the time. Um, so we went out, we, uh, we sat down, we had a little bit of food, we had a couple of beers, we got to chat in. And Ryan's a very upfront, very straight-talking, very personable guy as well. Mm -hmm. So after kind of like a, a, an hour or so of talking to him, I, I said I'd love to explore the opportunity. So they asked me to go in, uh, both Ryan and Joe asked me to go into Tipling Club and make some drinks on the, on the Saturday. So I went in, made, Ryan asked me to make three drinks, so I made him five. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, we, we, he offered me the job later that, that night. So oh, that's cool. That's how it all happened. So we talked about Tipling Club in the past. However, uh, I think it would be beneficial for us to talk about 
your iteration of Tipping Club. Yep. So why don't you talk to us about your current menu and the thought process behind it? Yeah, sure. So um, the current menu is uh, is called uh, a guide to modern drinking, and it's all based around uh, a, a very classical French cuisine, and uh, and in particular a very famous French chef who kind of started it all, whose name is Auguste Escoffier. So mm-hmm. Escoffier was kind of like the he's the kind of godfather of modern cooking, I, I would say. So um, he's a he's a very big influence into a, into the way that Ryan was kind of brought up in kitchens. And we wanted to do something that kind of like hadn't ever really been touched upon before. So, yeah, it was, it was I mean, it was an incredible kind of like experience kind of researching all of those things. I'm a history guy as well. Like I love history. Like one of my subjects at school was history. That was mm-hmm. m- that was my favorite thing. So getting into kind of like the geeky side of bartending and all the history that goes with it was kind of like two and two things put together that, that I was bound to, to enjoy. And we wanted to stray away from kind of like the things that Tipping Club had been doing for the past couple of years, which was a sensorium thing, which was kind of like what what Joe was known for. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put my own kind of imprint of onto course. Tipping Club, um, and we had some fun, man, with that menu. Like when you're when you're taking food and you're kind of replicating it into the form of a cocktail. It's so what we did was we took Escoffier's first cookbook, which was called A Guide to Modern Cooking, uh-huh. which was uh, released way back, kind of like at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And we took his most famous recipes in there or famous people in his life or famous events. And then we translated those stories into the form of a cocktail. So Escoffier was known as kind of like the chef, the, the king of chefs and the chef of kings because he was the best chef out there at the time. Uh, and he used to hold it, held, he held a lot of dinners for very important kings all over the world. He was the executive chef at the Savoy Hotel. Uh-huh. And then when he left the Savoy Hotel, he opened up the, the Ritz-Carlton with Cesar Ritz. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the executive chef for the first class cabin on the Titanic ship. He, he was the first kind of chef to kind of, he put the brigade system into place as well. So how we all know it works now and kind of a bar is the same structure. You've got head, head bartender or head chef, uh, sous chef, chef de party, demi chef, et cetera, et cetera. He put that into, into place because he spent seven years in the army before he became, before he opened his own restaurant which was called uh, the Golden Pheasant. So he got that structure from the army and then placed it into a kitchen uh-huh. as well. So, yeah, an amazing experience. And, you know, there's some fantastic drinks on there, all centered around his life. Would you like to talk to us about one of the menu highlights of one of the things that you are the proudest? There's, a, there's I mean, it's, a, it's, it's not just my menu, it's Tipping Club's menu, it's of the course. team's mm-hmm. menu. Um, you know, we all put a lot of work into that. Um, the two drinks on there that I probably enjoy the most the white truffles in winter. So white truffles in winter, it links back to Escoffier by being, it's the story of his life and his love for two women in his life as well. So he was in love with uh, actress Sarah Bernhardt and uh, poet Delphine Daffis, I think it was. Um, and it, the book is all about his life. The white truffles, I've always loved the flavor of truffles. Um, I've always loved truffles in champagne and kind of like putting those things, trying to put those things together. Uh-huh. The flavors in the drink are Palo Cortado Sherry, uh, orange blossom, popcorn, champagne, uh, and that's everything. And the kind of idea behind it is to make a, oh, there's white truffle oil in there as oh, well. Oh, yeah, so, of course. Um, the, the idea behind the drink is that it's meant to take a very basic champagne, a very non-vintage champagne, and make it taste like a vintage champagne. Uh-huh. 
um so the kind of like earthiness from the truffles kind of add that kind of like terroir-esque note to the champagne the popcorn gives it a nice kind of almost caramel style note uh -huh. Uh, the orange blossom comes through everything kind of works in conjunction and then the palo cortado sherry is in there to just kind of give it that bump and that little bit of more kind of like depth of flavor as well it's one of my favorite drinks you make me want to smash one right now actually <laughs> cool. um and then the other one would be uh, a drink called a bomb glacé which is based on a on a dessert by escoffia for which he lists in his in a guide to modern cooking i think he lists about 70 different variations for what is in effect just ice cream wrapped in meringue <laughs> but it's meant to look like a cannonball <laughs> it's meant to look like a cannonball hence uh -huh. the, the name bomb glacé but inside it's a it's a very long refreshing tequila based drink mm -hmm. with um so we redistill the tequila with uh bee pollen uh -huh. so you get kind of that honey-esque note to it um, and then we make a syrup from vetiver, which is a fragrant grass that's native to India, um, fig leaf, and a little drop of vanilla essence in there as well. And then it's just lemon juice and top with soda. Just shaking, refreshing, easy. Super cool. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. So I think I would ask, like to ask you a question we ask everyone. Yeah. Uh, if you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? Oh, so many choices. What would my very last drink be? A glass of champagne. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I if mean, it has to be a cocktail, I'd go with a I'd go with a Manhattan. It doesn't have to be a cocktail. I think a glass of bubbles is a pretty pretty yeah. solid. Uh, I think that's a good drink. way to go out, yeah. right? <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. It was oh, awesome pleasure. to talk to you, man. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Andy. We are unjigged underscore media on Instagram, and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.